You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Special Counsel Mueller makes his first public statement about the results of his investigation into influence operations surrounding the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign. He says his first statement will also be his last. FireEye identifies Iranian-coordinated inauthenticity in U.S. 2018 midterm elections, and Twitter and Facebook take down the offending accounts. Notes on the Blue Keep exploit, more Pegasus infestations, Reality Winner Revisited, and updates on Baltimore Ransomware. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, May 29, 2019. In his first public statement since completing his investigation into alleged influence operations and conspiracy during the 2016 elections, Special Counsel Robert Mueller spoke to the media briefly this morning from the Justice Department. After discussing the scope of his investigation, he quickly reviewed the indictments of Russian actors who engaged in hacking campaign networks, mostly Democratic, although he didn't name parties, and used WikiLeaks to retail the results of their doxing, and he did call out WikiLeaks. He also reviewed the indictment of a private Russian organization, the Internet Research Agency of St. Petersburg, although he didn't name them, for using social media in an attempt to influence the election. The special counsel scrupulously stressed that everyone under indictment is entitled to the presumption of innocence. He described his report as having two parts. Volume 1 dealt with efforts emanating from Russia to influence the election. This portion of the investigation concluded that there were such efforts and that there was insufficient evidence to charge any U.S. persons with conspiracy. The second volume dealt with possible obstruction of the investigation. Here, Mueller stressed that the report made no determination of whether the president in particular committed the crime of obstruction. The Constitution, he explained, precludes charging a sitting president with a crime. Should a sitting president be suspected of a crime, the Constitution prescribes other remedies. Investigation of a sitting president is, of course, possible, he added, and such investigation can preserve evidence or result in charges being brought against others. But by regulation, the special counsel had no option to charge the president with a crime. Thus, the special counsel ruled out making any determination of whether the president might be charged with obstruction. In addition to Justice Department rules and constitutional considerations, Mueller cited a principle of fairness. It would be unfair for a report to accuse someone with a crime they cannot be formally charged with, and so have their opportunity to be heard in court. With that, special counsel declined to offer comment on other conclusions or hypotheticals about the president. Special counsel Mueller said he'd asked the attorney general to release only parts of the report, but attorney general Barr preferred to make the entire report largely public, and Mueller took no issue with this. 
At the end of his brief statement, Special Counsel Mueller said he had no intention of speaking again, nor would he take any questions. Any testimony he might render to Congress would not go beyond the contents of the report. The report is my testimony, as he put it, adding that access to our underlying work product is being decided in the process that does not involve our office. The statement as a whole took less than 10 minutes. FireEye identified extensive coordinated information operations in support of Iranian interests during the U.S. midterm elections. Inauthentic accounts tended to express opposition to President Trump, but their ideological slant, in American terms, was opportunistic. Some of the lines pushed represented themselves as progressive, others as conservative, but their common goal was to advance Iranian policy. The tendency was in general anti-Republican, but again, it's important to bear in mind that this was opportunistic. The overall goal was to advance Iranian views. Both Twitter and Facebook, tipped off by FireEye, have removed the accounts in question. Politico observes that the Iranian activity indicates that other governments are cribbing from Russia's information ops playbook. Exposing that playbook can be dangerous, as the Times explains in a profile of troll-hunting Finnish journalist Jessica Aro, who's drawn death threats for her work. The Cyber Risk Services team at Deloitte partnered with the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center, that's the FSISAC, to survey members on how they handle budgeting and risk management for cyber vulnerabilities. They recently published their report titled Pursuing Cybersecurity Maturity at Financial Institutions. Julie Bernard is an advisory principal in cyber risk services at Deloitte, and joining her is John Carlson, chief of staff at the FSISAC. Financial planners look at efficiency ratios and leverage ratios as they evaluate companies, is there an equivalent in the cyber marketplace for measuring the effectiveness or efficiency of a cyber program? Yeah, there's a lot of data in the report. One of the things I want to focus on in the time we have today is you go through what you describe as cybersecurity maturity levels. Can you walk us through what they are and how you came up with the different categories? We did not come up with the categories. Um, Hmm. We have borrowed them from the NIST cybersecurity framework. So whereas in my history, serving firms and doing maturity scores, we often use like a CMMI level one through five. In this case, we borrowed from our friends at NIST. They have a more one to four type relationship. And so they use partial, informed, repetitive, and adaptive as their descriptors of material level. And let's focus in on the highest level there, which I suppose is adaptive. What are the aspects of an organization that falls into that category? John? Well, I mean, adaptive in the sense that our members are constantly monitoring what the threat environment is looking like through the sharing of voluntary information by disseminating information that we receive from U.S. government partners and other uh, companies that do threat intelligence work. So they're constantly looking at that information and making adjustments to their information security programs to respond to the changing threats. So it's that ability to uh, constantly adapt the cybersecurity program to deal with the evolving threat. Um, And that also means leveraging best practices both in terms of governance, in terms of intelligence and information sharing, uh, and then resiliency in the form of exercises and developing crisis response playbooks 
that will ultimately help the firms that they work for improve their security and protect their customers. Now, Julie, one of the things the reports digs into are the defining characteristics of advanced cybersecurity programs. These are the organizations that are you know, running at a high level. What are the characteristics that set these companies apart? Well, to, to reinforce what John just said, it's the adaptive nature of that. Most often they have C-suite visibility, whether the CISO actually reports to the CEO or CIO, chief operating officers, chief risk officers, and many of our financial services clients, usually there is a, a straight line to one and a dotted line potentially to one or more of those types of roles. So that helps because it gets them visibility at an executive level. There is also a higher level of board interest and board involvement, reporting to the board on a fairly regular cadence on both their strategy, as John mentioned, what the current threat and risks are that are impacting them in the environment, and a little bit on their program status. And almost half, 48% of the respondents said that cyber is on the board agenda at these companies at least once a quarter. Cybersecurity is a team sport, and that's why it's so important to have a strong tone set at the very top of the organization. As Julie noted, it's on the agenda for most of the board meetings. It's a top priority for the CEOs as well as the chief risk officers, in addition to the chief information security officers, which we work with most closely. But it's also about kind of embedding security into the culture, into the business lines, so that firms take advantage of the protections that are necessary, given that cyber is really everywhere in the business these days. So that aspect of it's a team sport, You've got to have leadership at the top. You've got to have strong implementation that goes deep into the business lines. And it's not just something that a security officer is imposing standards and requirements. It's something that's built into the DNA of the company. That's John Carlson from the FSISAC. He was joined by Julie Bernard from Deloitte. The report is titled, Pursuing Cybersecurity Maturity at Financial Institutions. You can find it over on the Deloitte website. Errata Security thinks that roughly a million machines are susceptible to exploitation of the BlueKeep remote desktop protocol vulnerability. Trend Micro has looked at the risk BlueKeep poses and concludes that while it may seem easy to trigger, actually achieving code execution on a target would be incredibly challenging. A more realistic danger, they think, is inducing DHCP server service crashes, a denial-of-service condition that could enable attacks via a rogue DHCP server. Forbes reports that other Saudi dissidents were infected with Pegasus spyware before the apparently Pegasus-connected, perhaps enabled, murder of Jamal Khashoggi. One of those affected is a Saudi dissident. The other is a well-known comedian, by YouTube standards, who's long devoted himself to lampooning the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Both targets reside in London, which lends an unpleasant international complication to the matter from the Saudi government's point of view. An essay in the National Interest argues that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, sometimes self-proclaimed leader of the now territory-less caliphate, is reorganizing ISIS. The terror group would now survive as a virtual community with local franchises operating murderously on the ground. The Easter massacres in Sri Lanka would serve as a template for further inspiration. Huawei alleges that U.S. sanctions amount to an unconstitutional bill of attainder. 
The company claims that Section 889 of the National Defense Authorization Act 2019 is the offending legislation. A bill of attainder, forbidden by Article 1, Section 9, Paragraph 3 of the U.S. Constitution, is legislation that imposes an extrajudicial criminal penalty on an individual or group. Huawei says that the National Defense Authorization Act, by barring U.S. federal agencies from using the company's products, amounts to exactly that. Kaspersky Lab took a similar line in court against its own ban. They weren't successful, and most observers think it unlikely that it will work for Huawei either. But Huawei's real audience is probably the media and not the federal bench. Reality Winner, the former U.S. Air Force member and post-service NSA contractor, is currently serving five years and three months under the Espionage Act for taking a classified report and sending it to a news outlet, in this case, The Intercept. Her mother, understandably, thinks reality is a patriot being held unfairly and hopes to see her pardoned by the president. Some of President Trump's tweets have in the past suggested he might be open to such a pardon, despite the strong and intemperate language Miss Winner used about him in her various social media accounts. Pre-arrest, that is. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 
Joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's great to have you back. I wanted to touch base about what's been going on in the city of Baltimore with their ransomware situation. There's been a lot of attention. Uh, The New York Times, the Washington Post and security pros on Twitter and other places have weighed in on this notion that some of the tools that perhaps had enabled this attack on Baltimore came from NSA. Yeah, so we're in week three of the ransomware attack here in Baltimore City. Um, It certainly had tangible effects. I haven't gotten a water bill, which might be a blessing for the moment, but I'm sure I'm going to be owing back pay uh, in the months to come. But it's had far more serious effects in terms of people being unable to record real estate deals. You've heard about there are these health databases that notify the public about uh, bad batches of recreational drugs that's been down. So it has life and death consequences. Hmm. And because of this New York Times article that came out over the weekend, we found out that the tool used by the hackers, and we still don't know who these hackers are, whether they are rogue foreign actors, whether they represent a nation state. But now, uh, apparently, we know that the tool they used is something called Eternal Blue, and it was originally developed by the National Security Agency several years ago. Uh, The NSA, as we know, has both offensive and defensive purposes. They are charged with protecting the cybersecurity of our entire country, including states and localities. And as part of their work, their their job is to identify flaws in the most commonly used systems and networks. They had discovered a flaw in Microsoft's system several years ago, and they developed this tool to potentially expose that flaw. In the intervening period, two things have happened. One, Microsoft very quickly came up with a patch to that vulnerability. Right. So all of its updates include that patch. Uh, so theoretically, if uh, states and localities have been updating their systems, that patch would have been in place. But most dangerously, the information in regards to this Eternal Blue tool was released online in 2017 by a group called the Shadow Brokers. Right. And two years later, we still don't know who this group is, whether yeah. they're rogue actors, whether they represent a nation state. There's been this sort of discussion as to whether the NSA can be blamed for both developing this dangerous hacking tool and you know having it leak publicly on the internet to be used for some of the world's worst cyber actors. I certainly think it's a legitimate debate, although I understand the NSA's role in doing what they can to identify vulnerabilities in our system for the purpose of protecting them against against bad actors. And knowing that these types of NSA leaks or their own security vulnerabilities are going to happen. We saw it with Edward Snowden a low-level contractor in 2013, and we saw it with the shadow brokers. Just because the NSA was unable to protect that information, there is something that states and localities could have done, which is to institute all updated security patches. And I think that needs to be the lesson going forward. Uh, Microsoft reacted quickly as soon as this vulnerability was identified. They came up with a security patch, and for whatever reason, cities and states across the country 
have been slow to update their networks. And that's opened the door for bad actors to find these vulnerabilities and cripple our networks. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a couple of things come to mind. Um, first of all, you know, my understanding of uh, this attack on Baltimore is that while it made use of Eternal Blue, that was primarily... Um, it allowed the ransomware to spread, to move laterally within the network. It wasn't, it wasn't the way that they got in, which is interesting. It was um, you know, an additional functionality that they were able to, uh, to use there. I have to say, and I suppose that part of this is just a local affection for the city, but uh, boy, my heart goes out to Baltimore on one, on one side because it's, uh, it's a city that has had a lot of trouble lately, uh, sort of kicking them when they're down. But on the other hand, as you say, it's been two years, and this is a basic functionality it, with something as serious as uh, Eternal Blue. When there's patches available at some point you have to scratch your head and wonder why couldn't the city have been more up to date or just kept on top of this? Absolutely. And, you know, I think our first instinct really should be sympathy. Baltimore's been through a lot, uh, particularly since 2015. Um, We are a city that is strapped for resources, and it's always easier after the fact to say that you should spend time and resources updating Windows software on every single device at City Hall. I get that. And, you know, I think we have to come at a place of of understanding. But this is really just a a lesson going forward Uh, and institutional knowledge to institute these patches. This is just a lesson learned as, as we go forward. Tough and expensive lesson for sure. Absolutely. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.